Well, good morning, Emmanuel. It's good to be with you once again. Um, the scripture reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 43. Paul and Barnabas are in a synagogue in Antioch, and Paul is preaching a sermon. And he comes to the part of the sermon where he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, when my children were 
very young, we were on vacation in California. And we were going to drive from San Francisco to the eastern part of the state, a drive a little over seven hours. And if you're familiar with California, there's this mountain range inconveniently placed right in the middle of the state. So getting west to east can be challenging. And so the, the most direct route through was to go through Yosemite National Park. So I, of course, thought, well, this, this would be great to leave early in the morning and have a day in the park. Uh, and then uh, continue to drive on, but a rebellion ensued and my urban kids who did not want to spend a day in the famous Yosemite National Park uh, made clear that it was not going to be an enjoyable day of wandering in the woods. So we planned just to go straight through, but on a long trip, of course, you do need to stop to stretch your legs uh, to get some fresh air. And so uh, Yosemite, the entrance, I don't know if it's three hours, three and a half hours from San Francisco. And then you go in these winding roads that you have to go slowly down into the valley. And after being in the car four hours or so, why not stretch our legs now? We've, we're, we're a bit cramped. We need to, to get out, stretch our legs. And what better place to stretch our legs than here? Now, I thought I might be able to sneak into people stretching their legs for an hour or two and going for a walk, but I was really prepared just for 10 minutes. What I was surprised at was how much resistance there was from the backseat about getting out of the car for five or 10 minutes. The word was, we don't need to stretch our legs. And it's fine if we're stopping the car and you want to get out, but we're completely fine. And so I tried to use various rational means to engage my kids. I said, if you get out of the car, you'll hear various languages. You'll hear German and Korean and Spanish and accents from Mississippi. People all over the world want to come to this park. They've planned weeks around this. They've spent a lot of money and you happen to be here. Why not just get out for 10 minutes? And if you get out, you may see these amazing stone figures. And if you look closely, there are people who think a good thing to do with their day is to climb them. And you might see moose and animals and all of these things. Um, you've been in the car for three and a half hours. You're going to be in the car for another four hours. So the book you're reading, the device that you're on, the little patch of comfort that you have, all of that's good, but why not get out of the car? <laughs> and I was amazed at the refusal to get out of the car. It seems so simple, which I'm just asking you to stretch your legs. Um, for them, you know, what is there? It's, there's just trees. You could, we've got Central Park if we want to see trees. Yeah, we don't have moose, but we've got raccoons in Morningside Park. Um, when you have a good book, when you have a good device, why bother getting out of the car? And, and here I was trying to explain to them, not only that it was temporary and reasonable, but actually the fresh air, the goodness, um, just get out while we're here, take it in. Uh, it's amazing how that on its own was not enough. Now, I'm sharing that because there is something about Jesus coming and inviting us into his announcement, the kingdom of heaven, and he explains it and he teaches us. And you find that the original audience doesn't understand everything going on. And we read the Bible and we don't understand what's going on. But he gives us this vision of a greater reality, a transformational reality. And we find ourselves happy enough. <laughs> um, maybe he has something to offer to us. But, but for the most part, we, we really can't grasp that he's really talking about something that, that's better than just, you know, the ordinary thing. So what is it with the resurrection? So, so on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection, the fact that Jesus has been raised. 
this is not an easy thing to grasp. And it's, it's not an ordinary thing. If you read the Bible and you think, well, miraculous things happen all the time in the Bible and, and the Bible portrays this magical universe, it actually doesn't. And yes, God does amazing things at various points, but raising somebody from the dead permanently, uh, that's unprecedented. We're not meant to simply think this is another thing God did, but this is a transformational moment. And in Paul's preaching in the book of Acts, uh, that's what he's telling them. He's saying God has fulfilled in our time something so remarkable that you wouldn't believe it if you hear it. And so the various responses we have to the claim that Jesus was raised and the implications, I'm going to share uh, four possible responses. And I think most of us are in the, f- in the first three camps. The, the fourth is what I'm going to talk about in the rest of the time, which is the resurrection has the, 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 uh, the, uh, the capability to invite us out of our lives into new life. But a first response is rejection. For some people, it's not worth thinking about, it's not interesting, or for others, it is worth thinking about, but it it just doesn't make sense. How on earth uh, could we believe that this happened? And so you do the historical studies of various things, but some people just find that that's a barrier. The claim that that a man who was crucified appeared alive from the dead, for some, they just won't go farther. There are some uh, of what I'm calling tentative acceptance. People who find enough enough about Christianity compelling Whatever it is, there's something that you think, there's something I like about Jesus, or these teachings are good, or church community, something, and maybe there's, there's always some issue that's hard in Christianity. For some, it's the resurrection. That's not it for everyone. Maybe the resurrection is easier for you, but there are other issues. But, but this tentative commitment to say, well, I'm going to step forward because, after all, something good is here, and I want to learn more, and I'll, 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 I'll maybe step in noncommittally, or I'll commit and step in, but there's a tentative component. The hope is something like the resurrection. Eventually it'll work itself out. Eventually I'll get it. And for some that happens, but for some, it always sticks around. I don't know. I like Christianity, but I'm still having trouble making sense of this thing. The third reality is where I suspect, since this is a gathering of the church, most of us are, and it's what I'm calling unimaginative commitment. Um, This is a church gathering. I imagine most of us are in some ways committed to Christianity, not all of us, but, but the majority of us where we would say, you know what, Christianity is true. So we'll accept the claim of the resurrection. We'll accept the teachings. We'll accept the hard things. And and after all, eventually you'll learn God is credible. God is trustworthy. And and human beings are finite. So so we get that not everything is going to make sense. And we get comfortable with that, which is good, which is right. You know, we can't understand everything all at once. But what happens then is we wind up making a commitment because we've gotten enough to convince us but we lack the imagination to really step into the new life. And so our Christianity becomes some Christian practices, some devotional things, um, uh, various commitments uh, in our thinking, but we really don't have that transformation. If Jesus was raised from the dead, something profound happened. And, and this early preaching that we're going to look at today invites us into it. And I think one of the ways we get stuck, that we never make it fully there to live that life, is because there's a paradigm shift, and that's what I'm going to talk about today, where we go from God in your life to you in God's life. And so I'm going to talk about that dynamic. I'm going to begin with God in your life. So what we know is our own experience. We know our own perspective, our own lives, and it's natural that that most of us 
uh, our orientation to the world is what can I do to make my life better? That's healthy. That's good. What can I add to my life? Uh, what can I do to, to, to um, advance my career, to increase my income? How can I have more deep friends? How can I have uh, better health? All of these things, and no doubt part of that is spiritual. So there's an inevitable question that any human being is going to wrestle with spiritual questions or philosophical questions or, or something in that realm of ethics, of meaning, of existence. Is there more than this? Is there a creator? What am I living for? Uh, those kinds of questions inevitably come up. But we can't help but ask them from our own perspective. So there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. Um, but there's so much that we don't know. Uh, Jesus um, has a saying that it's meant to clarify, but it's, it's, it's in itself is a hard saying. He, he, he talks about himself coming and he says, you know, you don't put new wine into old wine skins as a similar one. You don't, so uh, uh, an old patch of, of uh, clothing on a new, new garment, but the wine skins, I'm just going to stay with that one. You know, a wine skin, uh, apparently wine as it ferments would, would cause an expansion and an old wine skin would be expanded and you put new wine into it. It's going to expand more. Eventually it's going to break. And he seems to be saying, God is doing something that continues with the old in my coming. He's fulfilling the scriptures, but I'm doing something new and it doesn't fit. And if you try to fit me into your system, whether it's 21st century individuals, how does Jesus fit perfectly into our lives to make our lives better? Or whether it was in the first century in a synagogue saying, how does this, how does this rabbi fit into our system? Jesus says, if you try to fit me in, um, what I'm doing is too big, too transformative. You, you don't have the capacity for it. I'm not coming into your life, but I'm inviting you into mine. And so we see that as Paul uh, preaches to this group in verses 27 to 29, their response uh, of, of the audience that Paul recounts how Jesus comes and he fulfills the scriptures, and yet the very people that should have welcomed him crucified him. So he says, they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him crucified. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul is telling the story of what happened to Jesus. But an important part as he's speaking to his audience is, Hey, the people that he came to, um, they looked at his life and they knew he wasn't guilty. So it's right there um, in verse 28. They found in him no guilt worthy of death, yet they asked for him to be crucified. What happened? Well, what happened is they thought that they were being faithful to the scriptures because they studied them and Jesus didn't seem to fit their perceptions. And ironically, Paul says what they wound up doing is not properly reading the scriptures, but strangely fulfilling them. Because God announced in advance that as his people always misunderstood him, as his people always rejected him, when he himself comes, he will be misunderstood and rejected. So Jesus's rejection was actually fulfillment from the very people who had what should have been the criteria to uh, recognize him. And so Paul himself says this because this is part of his own story. He doesn't speak about himself in this particular sermon, but you could read if you go earlier in the book of Acts about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a certain party within early Judaism, a very strict party, a very devoted party. They, they were people of the book. 
and they took their faith very seriously. And so they studied the Bible. So Paul was one of those. And he had studied so much that when Jesus came, they wondered, is this the one? Because the scriptures say God will send a savior, a Messiah, uh, and we are to look for signs, a king on the throne of David, all of these things that some of the scriptures that were quoted in our passage and many others allude to. But Paul was among those who looked at Jesus and said, we don't think he's the one. He doesn't fit. And so ironically, their study of scripture that should have led them to recognizing exactly him led them to fulfilling the scriptures in rejecting him. And that's the problem of our um, trying to do, to trying to get ahead of God, of, of, of thinking things out in great details. Um, I've lived in a number of apartments in New York City. And uh, years ago, my wife and I had found an apartment that we were going to move into. And when we went to see it, they were going to renovate the kitchen. Now, this is not because we were moving into an apartment that was going to be wonderful. Some of you uh, who have have done apartment hunting in New York know that some buildings, um, they could only raise the rent a certain amount if they do a renovation. <laughs> so the concern is not to make the apartment great. The, the concern is to make the apartment more expensive. And so they do the cheapest renovation possible. So we went in as they had taken all the kitchen cabinets out and we imagined what the kitchen would look like. And as it turns out, uh, you can't move the sink if you're doing it cheaply and you can't move the stove if you're doing it cheaply. And so they put in the sink and the stove and the cabinets and what we thought would be a counter with the refrigerator, when it was time to move in, they, uh, they hadn't factored the refrigerator in. And so where it would have been, the doors, if it opened, would have hit the, uh, the stove, things like that. So the refrigerator wound up in the entryway where the door, uh, the front door opens and the bathroom opens. There was our refrigerator. So they planned out this kitchen hastily trying to squeeze everything in, but they didn't give sufficient thought that when the refrigerator comes, it's pretty big and it's going to need some space. <laughs> so the refrigerator needed to go outside the kitchen. Um, Paul is saying to his audience, this is kind of what's happened, that, that for all of your zeal, you've come up with an understanding of what it means to love and serve God. And so much of it is right. But when God himself showed up, there was no room for him. And that is tragic. You wound up condemning the innocent Jesus Christ. And in so doing, fulfilled the word that would say, we're a stubborn people, a sinful people. We always reject God. And we still do it. We still do it when we think, how do I fit God in my life? God needs to make sense to me. God needs to fit into my my patterns, uh, the lifestyle that I aspire to. And so, yes, we could learn something from Jesus, but we don't want that kind of radical faith that makes us weird. And Jesus doesn't want to make us weird, but he does want to open a door to a deep reality that we can't fathom. And as long as we're trying to squeeze all of what Jesus promises and all that he says into our finite lives, we will be unimaginative and we will not have that power of the resurrection working itself out in our lives. Paul is a famous figure. Uh, and uh, perhaps one of the, the most famous, more recent figures is C.S. Lewis, another man who rejected Christianity, who was very smart, who worked out carefully how he thought about philosophy, ethics, and firmly believed Christianity could not be true. Um, one of the reasons C.S. Lewis is so popular is because he brings together two things that are somewhat unique. Um, he was a very smart guy. He taught at Oxford. Uh, he was very rational, very reasonable, but he was also an, quite an imaginative person. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. 
uh, until we have faces and the space trilogy. And so, so here you have this person that, that his contribution to Christianity is this very wise, reasoned, imaginative picture, but that was actually the problem that he had. So if you read Surprised by Joy as he shares his story, he basically says, prior to being a Christian, I lived with this tension that was dissatisfying, that I had this imagination that was informed by literature and the arts, and I had this reasonableness that was rational, and the two were divided in me, and I couldn't make sense, uh, or he wouldn't say I couldn't make sense, but he lived with that tension. Here's what he did say. He says, there was the state of my imaginative life, over against it stood the life of my intellect. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I thought to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. That's how we experienced that tension. Nearly all that I loved, I thought to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. That's not everyone, but that's why so many of us uh, look for escape. <laughs> because reality is grim and meaningless. That's what makes sense as far as our thinking goes. And then there's the fantasy that encourages, but is not true. C.S. Lewis uh, had some very bright friends, uh, Owen Barfield, J.R. Token, and they talked with him and reasoned with him. But one day, God opened his eyes and these two things came together. He realized that the imaginative was pointing to a greater reality that was true and that he didn't need to, to set aside his intelligence in order to become a Christian, but that through the work of the spirit, his intelligence became alive. It was, he had a baptized imagination. There was a a resurrection. He was not a guy looking to become a Christian. He was a guy content rejecting it. But God showed him something. God brought new life to him. And that new life transformed him. So one of his legacies is to be somebody who helps us to understand the truth through these imaginative stories and helps capture our imagination through these statements of Christian truth. And God did something in his life that is the kind of thing that he could do in the life of every person the person who won't keep trying to cram God into our lives so that Christianity is safe and makes sense, but is willing to hear the invitation of God and step into that life. So that's what I want to talk about next. I've been talking about God in your life. The promise of Easter is that you are invited into God's life. The promise of Christianity is much more profound than your mediocre life could be a good life. Your difficult life could be a better life, but your life of suffering and death <laughs> Your life of trouble and difficulty could be radically transformed so you come alive, not just for this season, but for all of eternity. And so um, Paul goes on to, to announce in verses 32 and ver verse 33, he says, we bring you the good news that what was promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He says it's good news. He, he, he doesn't say, I'm coming to give you some advice. Listen to me. He says, I'm coming to announce something that God has done. You should hear it. And in believing it, listen to his invitation. And he talks about fulfillment. And there's two kinds of fulfillment that he's talking about. He talks about previously the verse that we looked at, 
you fulfilled the scriptures by rejecting the innocent Jesus and crucifying him. But here in verse 33, but God fulfilled his promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived many years before. And our people never got the story right. And in fact, we got the story exactly how God said that we would reject. We fulfilled the scriptures in rejecting God, but God fulfilled his promise in sending Jesus to be rejected so that through him we could be accepted. That's the news. That's the announcement. It's not that God is going to improve your life. It's not that there's some moral system that's going to come into your life. God announces an invitation that he has been faithful to what he promised. And if you trust him, he will show you great and amazing things. And so in verses 37 to 39, he says, speaking of Jesus, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, and in our gathering, he would say brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, Paul, as a Pharisee, we would say there's nothing greater. There's been no better system because it's revealed by God. And so anything else in comparison, other religion, other philosophies, other ethics, Paul would say there's nothing compared to the law of Moses. And yet the law of Moses was not able to free us. But Jesus came in fulfillment to the law of Moses, and he alone brings us freedom. He brings us forgiveness. Why is forgiveness important? Well, look at your own life, your guilty conscience, your feelings of shame. But look at the life of humanity. When the righteous one came, did we welcome him? Temporarily. But ultimately, we rejected him. We need forgiveness because we, we try to fit God into our lives when it's convenient, and we don't live a life that is transformed and honors him. And so speaking of Jesus, he says, the one that we rejected, God raised up, and an important, in a fulfillment of Psalm 16, other passages in verse 37, he says, the one God raised up did not see corruption. And he's talking about the corruption of his body. He's not talking about corruption. Actually, he saw a lot of corruption in that uh, scam of a trial that he underwent. Not that kind of corruption. He's talking about uh, decay of the body. See, from the time of Adam, whose name means humanity, until our day, human beings die. And the announcement of the curse when Adam didn't believe God and turned from God was that he would return to dust. Adam was formed from the dust and he would die, but the death wouldn't be the end. His death would, would continue. Uh, when his heart stopped beating and his brain stopped functioning, uh, his body would decompose and he would return to the dust. That's the fate of humanity. A terrible fate if we're really willing to look it straight in the face. But Jesus was not from the dust. Jesus came from the heavenly realms. And so when Adam died, he returned to the dust. When we die, we return to the dust. When Jesus died, he didn't return to the dust because he was not of the dust. He returned to the Father because he was from the Father. So yes, Jesus tastes death. A righteous man who should not have died came and died a sinner's death for us in our place. But he did not see corruption. Because we handed him over to death, but God did not allow him to decay to the dust. Instead, God raised him up and brought him back where he belonged. The Easter promise is a promise of transformation. Not that we are made from the dust in Adam, that we have better lives and die and return to the dust, but that an alternate has been offered. Yes, we will all die, but through faith in Christ, we don't need to return to the dust. 
we could return to the Father. And that's the transformation that we can't earn on our own. That's the Easter message. In raising Jesus from the dead, God did something unprecedented. He brought the life back to himself. And we're told he will bring our lives back to himself if we believe him. So yes, we face death. The Easter promise is not that your life will be instantly fine or fun or easy. The Easter promise is you'll be forgiven for all that you've done wrong and for all the troubles of those who have wronged you. And yes, we will see death because that's part of our calling in life unless Jesus appears in our generation. Could happen. But if he doesn't, on the other side of death is not corruption. On the other side of death is resurrection, new life. That is the Easter promise. And so verses 40 and 41, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, there's already been a time we fulfilled the scriptures by not believing God and rejecting. Let's not do it again. God has done something profound in raising Jesus, unprecedented. It's hard to believe if you have trouble, if your mind can't grasp it, it's not that there's something wrong with you. Uh, this is profound and amazing. You just need to do the, the work. <laughs> read the historians. Uh, read the academic literature of Christians who believe this is true and make that, that case. But what we're told is there's a warning here to say, look, God is done doing something so great you would not believe it, even if it's told to you. Because God is not going to come and fit into your life. God is going to come into your life and fit you into his. And that's where transformation happens. That's where we live lives that are truly free because it's been the work of God and we're invited into it. And so let's today at this hearing not be happy with one, two, or three, rejecting God, making a strange commitment, or making a commitment that, that's just not lively. But we're invited into a transformation. God comes into your life, knowing your limitations, your sins, and he calls you out of that through forgiveness. He raises you up in Christ so that you share in the death of Christ through that partnership and you share in the life of Christ. And now you live that new life. You know, Easter is meant to be a very encouraging Sunday, a reminder as the spring comes of, of the sunrise and of the warmth coming of flowers that we can live new life. And I want you to walk away today with that vision that you could reimagine this new life. Of course, the problem is um, this year, perhaps more than others, this is not true of, of all of our lives or certainly not of every generation, but some years we just need a good, a good Easter gathering to, to perk us back up, to energize us, to go back into the world. But this has been an awful year, a year of, of sickness and death, a year of great suffering, a year of racism, a year of political turmoil. Um, all that is troubling in our world, not all of it, but so much that is so awful came to the surface in ways that's overwhelming. And we need to get on with our lives and try to work over Zoom and try to maintain relationships and try to be healthy and try to do whatever we can do in all of this unknown. And so many of us are being worn down and we're overwhelmed that simply having a Zoom service with a video with cute children uh, and this great choir, uh, oh man, that energizes me. These upcoming months, I, I need more than just, just today. I, I need this resurrection power. And what we're told is Easter comes into exactly this world and those kinds of lives and, and gives hope so that it's not that tomorrow will start 
an amazing life in, in the contrast to the next year. Tomorrow may start struggles, but, but Easter says, but you can go into tomorrow with some transformation so that you will see differently. You have an imagination to walk with God, to see opportunity and, and to grow and to learn. And yes, you cry out and you, you pray for help and you lament and you, you deal with the turmoil. But if Jesus has been raised, you are ready for it. You can face it, not on your own, but with Christ in you, you are in Christ and therefore you can face it. In the New York Times this weekend, there was an article by Esau McCauley. Many of you uh, would be familiar with him. He's written, uh, certainly he's a good book, uh, Reading While Black, but uh, he wrote about Easter. Um, very interesting in that he's giving radical hope, the kind of hope that's celebrated in the black church, that hit, that's his tradition, but a very realistic hope where he talks, he, he, uh, something that he wrote struck me, so I'm just going to read it about the gospel accounts of the women going to the tomb. He said, the women did not go to the tomb looking for hope. They were searching for a place to grieve. They wanted to be left alone in despair. The terrifying prospect of Easter is that God calls these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness, and an abundance of love. It would make them seem like fools. Who could believe such a thing? What he's saying is they didn't go there wondering, is Jesus still in the tomb? His own followers didn't understand exactly what God would do. They went there because they were overwhelmed with grief. They've crucified the one we love. And when Jesus appeared to them, he didn't say, come with me to heaven. But he said, I'm sending you out into the world to tell people you saw me alive from the dead. Would you like to be the first messenger of that? Would you like to be a woman in a man's world going and saying, by the way, God sent me to tell you that the one you crucified is alive? Do you think that was an easy task? And so they go out with this task, an impossible task that would lead to their alienation and rejection. But what Macaulay highlights is, but they have the gift of hope and the power of God. Well, the one who was also rejected, but was raised up, he's with you. So if you go into the world believing something impossible, don't worry about it. That's the nature of this world. But that's part of the hard calling. Jesus doesn't pull us out of this world and raise us when we believe, but he leaves us in this world and puts a spirit in us so that we would be empowered to live glorifying lives in a broken world, a world that rejects God, a world that can't take the truth in. We are called to bear witness to the truth in the midst of that world. And so as we think of examples on Easter, how do we know that the resurrection really sustains and brings life? And there's lots of stories. I think one of the outworkings of a day like today, those of you, in the, those of you who are creative types in the arts, go and create for God's glory. Uh, those of you who enjoy doing something like cooking, have a delicious meal. You know, if you run, run three more miles for God's glory. I mean, there's so much there in the power of Easter that can give us life and vibrancy. Hope for it, search for it. But the evidence is that this is not just another pep talk, that, that the gospel message is just not Jesus being another uh, effective motivational speaker. Is the testimony not of the people whose good lives became greater, but the people whose miserable lives were sustained. And so one example of that is a woman named Catherine Green McCree. Now she uh, is a theologian. And so here's three things about her to know. One, um, she has a PhD from Yale, so she's very intelligent, we would assume. Two, she's an ordained Episcopal priest, so she certainly knows religious practices. Uh, but here's a third thing about her. She is bipolar. 
Uh, and she shares her story of, of after her second child was born, signaling, triggering a bunch of things that, that now uh, beyond middle age, years of struggle, um, numerous lengthy hospitalizations, uh, where her, her mania was so great that she would have psychosis, her depression so terrible that for months she was just in the pain of having to exist. She writes a book as a Christian trying to make sense theologically of her own experience. What does it mean when your brain is sick? Um, and how, how is the soul sustained by God? That's the kind of perspective she has in her book. What I just want to share is that she bears testimony to being somebody who took full advantage of all of the resources. You know, some Christians are very skeptical about modern medicine applying to these things. She was somebody that uh, that uh, worked with psychiatrists and psychologists and was medicated and did uh, electroconvulsive therapy and all of these things that, that she would still say, if you were in my position, I would advocate you do it. But what she said, she found, is that in those low moments... Um, there's nothing anyone can do for you. There's nothing anyone can tell you. And so one of the things she says is the sick individual cannot simply shrug it off or pull out of it. There is no pulling oneself up by the bootstraps. Her experience was I was in a place where I was not able to just hear good advice. And so what she goes on to write, this is what I'm going to read. And this is uh, from an article that she wrote. She says, the hope of the resurrection is not just optimism but keeps the Christian facing ever toward the future, not merely dwelling in the present. In my bouts with mental illness, this understanding of Christian hope gives comfort and encouragement, even if no relief from symptoms. Sorrowing and sighing will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. Even fractious brains will be restored. And that's what she's saying. She's saying Christianity was not a quick fix. Christianity, when I had nothing else to hold on to, the hope of the resurrection is what sustained me. She couldn't envision a tomorrow. She did not want to exist today. But she knew by faith because of the promise of God, the testimony of scriptures and the great cloud of witnesses, that despite what she thought was true, what her mind and experience told her, what her emotions felt, she knew what was deeply true is that if she kept going, God would somehow redeem this. There would be reconciliation. She did not fear judgment. She knew by faith in Christ she was forgiven. And so she endured time after time. And, and her witness is, you don't get through that quickly and easily. But as a Christian, she says, but through faith in the God who raises the dead, you do get through it. And one day we will die, but we will not see corruption. There will be a resurrection. And it's not just our bodies uh, in terms of hands and feet, but it's our brains, our sick brains. It's our diseased bodies. It's our disabled, uh, dysfunctional bodies will be raised to new life. And the souls that lean on Jesus, as we go through this life filled with troubles and opportunities, ups and downs, uh, the soul and the body join together will be raised to new life. And so what we're told in the preaching in the book of Acts in the church sense is that God does something that's hard to believe even if you hear it. But if you're not trying to, to fit this message into the convenience of your life, 
But if you're willing to believe the testimony of God and step into the life promised by Christ, the resurrection power is not simply some far off future thing, but it's something that begins now as you believe that this is true. If Jesus has been raised, I will be raised. And so I no longer need to be overwhelmed by guilt. I no longer need to fear death. But today I could live for the honor and the glory of the life-giving God. And so this Easter, uh, we're not out of these COVID woods. We haven't fixed society's problems. Uh, there is more difficulty to come. But we can be hopeful, even if we have trouble being optimistic, because the God who raised the dead will fulfill his promise to raise up all who trust in him. So I invite you to trust him today. Don't bring God into your life. We'll bring God far enough in to hear him say, now come out of this old life of yours and into my life. And when we do that, we have hope. We will be sustained. We can trust that this year we will see God do great and amazing things because God is a life-giving God. So let's trust in him. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we gather today as a diverse people, diverse in many ways, but certainly diverse in our experiences. Some of us are having a really hard time. Some of us are doing okay. Some of us are doing pretty well. We're, but we're one body. And Lord, we pray with those today who are not doing okay, whether it's just this week or whether it's this year or whether life has been unfairly hard. We pray with those friends, those brothers, those sisters, uh, because we believe in this assembly and the power of the resurrection, that all life um, is given by you and will return to you. And so we pray on behalf of others who are, on those with us who are losing faith, who are losing hope, who don't have enough in them, in the functioning of their minds or in their spiritual convictions right now to hope for themselves, we hope with them. We, we pray on their behalf. Lord, sustain your people. And Lord, for the rest of us who are just trying to get through this tough period, Lord, help us to see your grace in it and to believe that if you can forgive our sins through Jesus Christ and if you could raise him up, that there is nothing that would separate us from that reality. And so, Lord, today may we be a people who hope in you, who receive this good word, and who walk in the life that you offer to us, that we would see the door that you're open and, and put down our book and get out of the car and, and live this new resurrection life. And so, Lord, um, we need your help. And so we look to you and ask that you grant it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.